Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. And welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and today I'm joined by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good. A little tired from covering meetings last night, but pretty good. Yeah, it's been uh, not so much a big news week, but there's been a lot of stuff that that did go down. Uh, and we're going to get into all of that shortly. Um, so why don't we just jump in? Uh, the the biggest piece of news as we were as we we're recording on Wednesday, yesterday, April second, was the elections. So how did those shake out? Uh, what what turned? What, what were the results? Uh, big implications for Sturgeon Bay, as uh, many expected. David Ward won the race for city's mayor pretty handily. So I would think that that's kind of a you know if you were to pick like you know there's kind of like a, a two sides thing going on in Sturgeon Bay with the pro granary, pro public waterfront versus anti-granary, pro-private development on the waterfront groups. And uh, Ward is definitely in the latter of those camps. Likely to see um, a continuation of the policies that Mayor Birmingham has pursued as mayor, but maybe a slightly different tone. Ward maybe I think you would consider him a little bit more of a potential consensus builder based on his track record working on the road repair issues in Sturgeon Bay and the Pratt tax but also very much uh, kind of in line with the um, former mayor's uh, approach to um, development. So on that side, I, I think you see not a major change in the, in the mayor's seat in a practical sense. Then the, but the bigger thing was on the council. So you had four seats up for election, only one incumbent running, and that incumbent lost. So you're going to have four new council members on Sturgeon Bay after last year getting three new council members. So in a, in a year's time, you have a, a lot of major changes and some big voices um, being bounced from, from the council. What do you think that that means overall for a place like Sturgeon Bay, that we've got these, these big shifts that are happening every couple of years? Does that just mean that there's, there's a lot of passion on either side and that the, the political realm down there is thriving? Uh, yeah, that's, that's one, that's thriving is one take on it. The, I, I mean, it is so, people are so reactionary. Um, and I think people last time around, last April, when they voted in three candidates who were, um, very pro save the granary, but it wasn't so much that people were maybe voting pro granary, but they were voting for change. Like we need to get out of this stalemate. Let's just move things forward. And then I think when that council came in and then immediately, went after uh, trying to axe the city administrator, and then shortly after that, kind of campaigned to move the, the granary back to the other side right away before the waterfront committee had done its work. I think that shifted um, a lot of people into saying, oh, come on, we want to get past like this pettiness. Let's, we thought we were voting for like a new spirit, a new uh, collaboration, and now we've got like more of this sort of like rushing things through and I think once that happened, you knew that people were going to kind of flip anyway. I think there was going to be a backlash no matter what. I think that brought it even more so. And I think one of the races that really indicates that is 
Laurel Hauser, um, who's kind of been a, a middle ground in a lot of issues on the council. She lost by just three votes. And I'm guessing that if the granary hadn't been pushed ahead and um, moved and that this effort to move it back before the waterfront committee had done its job, I'm thinking probably Laurel Hauser keeps her seat. I don't know if that in changes any of the other three seats, but she she might have kept her seat had that not become an issue. Well, and that that's such a close election, I think it just goes to show, I mean, the old additive is that every vote counts, but in a place like Door County where the voting pools are smaller, uh, that really is true. I mean... Yeah, when I say three votes, you're t- 248 to 245. Right. That's a, a small electorate and... It really goes to show, I mean, in, in the local election, really, the knocking on doors uh, really matters to, like, a greater degree. What were some of the other, um, what were some of the other results from the election? Um, well, there's a big one. Bailey's Harbor has a new town chairman that was kind of surprising. Doug Smith won very handily over incumbent Don City. Doug Smith is a former town clerk of Bailey's Harbor who resigned uh, a couple of years ago. And then, uh, well, in Egg Harbor, my dad lost by 30 votes. I don't know if that's like a huge upset. Egg Harbor hasn't had a lot of big controversial topics. It's a pretty quiet town. It's uh, there's there's not like big development projects. Probably the biggest thing in the last couple of years was the Door Artisan Cheese Factory, which Egg Harbor doesn't have zoning, so that is what it is. But um, I'm trying to think of uh, other ones that would be considered big upsets, and nothing's popping to my head. I'm probably forgetting one. Of course, the two school board referendums. Both passed with nearly 70% of the vote, which we've seen in all of the school board, or not, I'm sorry, not school board, school referendum elections. Um, both passed with 70% of the vote. And that's what we've seen the last couple of years and couple of election cycles. These things consistently pass with 65 to 70% of the vote, which might indicate to the state legislatures, hey, maybe you should raise that revenue limit and just reset the clock on this because voters overwhelmingly approve of funding the schools. Right. I mean, that Um, would be a good indication. I mean, people are voting overwhelmingly to raise their own property taxes to fund the schools. That's that's a rarity. (laughs) Right. Um, Sturgeon Bay is afraid to go to its voters to raise property taxes for roads or anything. So that's that tells you a lot. Right. Then uh, the two, well, all four marijuana referendums passed because each both the village of Egg Harbor and the city of Sturgeon Bay had a medicinal an advisory referendum. Um, Right. That's the key word. Yeah, advisory. No binding. Marijuana is not suddenly legal in Egg Harbor and, and Sturgeon Bay. But it was an advisory referendum to say, how does this community stand on the issue of legalizing uh, recreational marijuana use and medicinal marijuana use? Two separate questions. Uh, medicinal passed very strongly in both communities. Um, recreational passed very strongly in Egg Harbor and narrowly in Sturgeon Bay. Why just Sturgeon Bay and Egg Harbor? Have other communities already voted, or are they on the docket, or just... Those are just the only two communities where the where the um, the village board in the case of Egg Harbor or the city council in the case of Sturgeon Bay, those were the two communities that those councils voted to put it on the ballot. You have to, you have to get that passed to put on the ballot to even have an advisory referendum. I would not be surprised if you saw a few more communities do that in the coming years in local elections as people try to push for more of that at the state level. All it does basically is send a, a note, essentially, to a guy like Joel Kitchens or the, the governor or Andre Jacques to say, this is what your community wants. If, you know, for supporters of it, they would say, now go push for this, fight for this for us. For those against it, they would say, like, no, 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 just this, this is just like a, something to consider. But I would guess you'd see more. They've tried to get it on the county ballot, um, and that has been unsuccessful. In the past, but 
I think I think you'll see more of that. We have a letter this morning that came in from somebody who is uh, actually William Berglund, the, the chair of the Repu- uh, Republican Party in Door County, who blames uh, on the ma- marijuana front, blames re- Illinois Democrats for moving to the county and bringing their politics with them. I think that's probably and that's probably something that a lot of maybe old school residents believe and maybe haven't talked to a lot of younger or even older folks who are not thinking like them. Like it's not it's not an outside vote. I mean, just right. talking to a ton of different people. Oh, then big city boys came yeah. up here and brought their pot with them. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know if these guys know this, but there is pot in Door County smoked by locals. Well, a and, lot of your old school locals. Sure, right? and and even beyond that, it's like it, it's not just like an urban thing. It is, uh, especially when you're talking about medical marijuana. I mean, that has implications for people of all ages, but especially elderly people. Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of things that that is good for. And with our aged population, Door County seems like a great place to have these types of advisory referendums voted on, so that you can, you know, you can gauge the community's response. Yeah, I mean, you see now like a lot. It's, it's weird. We are fine with incredibly addictive, powerful prescription drugs being legal to treat pain. We have an opi- opioid epidemic across this country that people are dying from, from those drugs that we have deemed legal and then and kind of throw around like candy. And then meanwhile, you have something like marijuana that people are using to treat pain, that there are still this huge thing that that's too dangerous. That's a step too far when it's not nearly as powerful or as addictive as a lot of these other substances we already approve. Like I've said before, I'm not a marijuana smoker, but like if you see these NFL players dealing with concussions and, and other issues, a lot of them are saying, hey, I'd much rather treat this by smoking marijuana to ease the pain and like calm me down and, and take care of my anxiety than pile up a lot of these opioids that you want to keep putting me on. Right. Well, and th- I mean, that's a good way to juxtapose the, the medical marijuana against the opioid crisis. But I mean, you can even take recreational marijuana and put it up against smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol. I mean, think about the amount of uh, DUIs and drunk driving accidents that we have in the United States and then compare that to incidents or deaths or anything that have marijuana as the leading contributor. It's it's if, if your concern with marijuana is safety and you are not vehemently fighting to outlaw alcohol, then you're a hypocrite. Because right. if you compare the two and the dangers of the two, and I am a, a guy who likes a drink, I like a cocktail, I like a glass of wine, I like a beer. I don't want it to be outlawed by any means. We tried that once before in this country. It didn't work out so well. But if you're sitting here saying that marijuana is too dangerous and then you're not doing anything actively to fight on um, stricter drunk driving laws, like much stricter drunk driving laws, or access to alcohol for violent people who have violent convictions. Or there's so many other things you could fight for that would have a much more impactful measure or effect on societal safety. Then you're just not either. You're either not thinking that too deeply. You're not real smart, or or you're just like you're just a hypocrite. Or I mean, just try it and, and see if you like it. <laughs> I mean, that would be my first thing. Like, well, have you tried it? Because if you try it, you'll probably like it. <laughs> so moving on from politics a little bit. The, the bay is frozen, as it freezes every winter, but it's not thawing very quickly. And that might have some implications for some events that are coming up, specifically at the end of April. So is this, where's the bay ice normally at around this time of year? Uh, it depends. Like, uh, this winter, obviously, with all the snow cover, when you get all that extra snow cover, um, it just takes longer for the ice to melt. I mean, that kind of creates this uh, cooler effect on the lake. 
Um, you know, there's some years where we are totally cleared out by now. There, there's some years where we don't get much ice cover at all and where there's a very short period, uh, little snippets really of ice fishing season and um, opportunities to go out on the bay. The last couple of years have been really solid for ice coverage. But yeah, now we're getting to a point where, yeah, maybe you might still be dealing with some, uh, a lot of ice chunks out there when you come up to these brown trout tournaments and things that are coming up. And even for us at the half marathon, there's been one year in the 11 years we've put that event on in which we still had little icebergs on the, on the shoreline. When you went through Ephraim, there was still like 15 feet of ice washing up against the shore that morning. Maybe we'll have that again this year. Uh, it's, it's still hanging around. Although you can get like, sometimes it's like a couple of big currents wash a lot of that out and a couple of hot days. But yeah, we've been sitting, I mean, we had snow this morning when I woke up. Right. Um, it, it snowed on April 1st. It snowed a little bit uh, yesterday. Um, not anything to accumulate or, or anything that lasted more than like 25 minutes or anything like that. But uh, last night it was, it, it rained and then it hailed and then it snowed yeah. this morning. It's just been weird really for, weird weather night last night. Yeah. And what you when you see this kind of stuff when it, you know there's a blessing and a curse when the when the snow hang or the ice hangs around longer you have you know people who go out and take risks you have fishermen who try to get one one more day out there and this is the time of year you gotta you gotta be safe on the ice and not take that risk because you're the one stuck out there a it's very dangerous b it takes a lot of resources to go and save that one person so you're really you're really being very selfish if you're trying to squeeze something in when it's when it's not safe out there. But every year around this time of year, where there, there's like three to four instances of people getting caught and stranded out on the ice that have to go get rescued. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, they don't send an icebreaker out to get you if you fall through the ice. No. They have to come out, you know, on foot to go get you. And they're putting themselves in the same situation that you were just in. And a lot of it is not necessarily that they get at rest, they, they fall through, although that does happen. Um, a lot of it is just getting stuck on a chunk of ice that gets separated from the major trunk. And then you're just kind of stuck out there on the water. I know that that's not funny, but it the the visual of it yeah, of being out and then all of a sudden just your little patch of ice separates and floats out like your own little island. <laughs> that for some reason is more funny to me. I'm sure yeah. in the moment, terrifying. It always seemed like a very good adventure when I was a kid. We're like, oh man, maybe we should go out there on that chunk of ice. But right. Well, and as long as you bring a kayak paddle with you, you'll be fine because you can just row back to shore on the iceberg. <laughs> Would you consider fishing to be a spring activity or a summer activity? That depends what you're fishing for. I'm not like a, a huge fisherman by any means, but I mean, there's certain times a year for um, trout, salmon. Um, I think whitefish is pretty much year-round. Lawyers have a particular time when they're better to catch. Um, but yeah, it just depends what you're fishing for. Right, and that's why that's why the the bay ice is is a particularly interesting situation right now. Like you said, the the brown trout tournament is coming up at the end of April. This is kind of when when things start to kick off. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a bay to fish in, then you're gonna maybe miss out on some of that. They call themselves the Stradivarius Builders of Sturgeon Bay because the guys at Palmer Johnson were artists in wood and metalwork, anything you imagine. They did it so beautifully well. The first fishermen came down the lake from Pankin Island, worked their way along the north shore of Lake Michigan, and they came because of the whitefish. The whitefish were abundant. In 1945, 2,000 German prisoners of war came to Door County and picked cherries for just one harvest season. Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to telling the stories of Door County, past, present, and future. 
To learn more about the history of shipbuilding in Sturgeon Bay, to see how the cherry became a Door County icon, or to watch the peninsula's last remaining fishermen brave the waters to haul in thousands of pounds of whitefish daily, and the many other incredible stories produced with the Door County Visitor Bureau, visit doorcounty.com slash ourdoorcounty. Next up, the DCEDC released its housing study. We talked about this when they first announced it, and now it's come out. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the results were, yeah, we need more affordable housing in Door County. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary. (laughs) I was actually just in a housing meeting yesterday uh, with a group that we are trying to disseminate that information to different communities and and give some presentations so people understand what that is. I mean, um, you've probably seen it on Facebook. There are people who see the saw the housing study PR that came out roughly a month ago and say, well, this is a stupid waste of money. Why are we studying this issue? We all know there's housing. But there's they're studying it, but there's also getting data that can be used to potentially solve that problem. Well, and it, it's not just that they needed to figure out if there was a housing problem or not. It's about gathering data to then support or set a precedent for any sort of movement that happens on the issue, right? Right. It's used as as a, a tool to back up. So if they were to go in and be like, we're going to dump this much money into affordable housing or we're going to introduce these programs, they can report or they can point back to this study and say, this is the data that we collected that supports that. It's not about deciding whether or not there is an issue because of course there is. It's to gather what they need to support any sort of programs moving forward. And also like get the business on board. And because like generally what you have up here is a lot of people, once they get a house, they stop thinking that there's a housing problem. Most of the people on the town boards, councils, boards of trustees, they own homes. So they don't, it's not as acute to them until maybe they have a, a child trying to move back and get a rental apartment or something. And then they finally wake up to it. But in general, they're like, well, yeah, of course, find it. It's hard. Go get it. You know, whatever. And this provides some data just to show how dire the situation is. And you, when you correlate that with like the declining enrollment in the high schools, with the aging population, I mean, especially Northern Door has one of the oldest, if not the oldest population in the state. And Sturgeon Bay also has a, a above average age population. You, you're going to see some, and we saw this 20 years ago. People were t- telling everyone that, hey, this is going to hit a tipping point. But people, it wasn't as, it's kind of like, kind of like climate change. It really hadn't hit yet. But even though all the numbers said where we were going, nobody wanted to really take any action on it. And now I think it's at a tipping point where people realize, well, we really do need to take action. We don't have nurses to take care of all the old people we have. We don't have the home health care um, providers. We don't have the psychologists that we need. We don't have a lot of the resources. We don't have the tradesmen anymore. And part of that is it's like really hard to live up here if you're not um, making substantially more money. So there, we're starting to see the lack of services due to the fact that young professional and um, blue-collar workers can't afford homes up here. Well, and or rental apartments. Yeah, and the other thing that you said too is that, like, you know, once you have a home, it could, it's easy to forget that there's a problem. But the other part of it too, you're talking about people on boards and stuff like that. Those people generally aren't young. They're not in their twenties. They have had their homes for a while, and the housing situation was probably different than it is now when they were getting their home. A good example of that is of the five new people elected to both the mayor and the city council in the city of Sturgeon Bay, four out of five are over 70. Sure. And like one of the things that we do at The Pulse when we're looking for new recruits is we ask if they have any connections up here. Do you have family that comes up here? Do anything like that? 
so that we know that they have a place to stay. I mean, that's the first hurdle that we go over because if we're trying to pull somebody really talented out of Madison or Milwaukee or, or, or Minneapolis and they don't have a place to stay, we know that that's going to be the very first struggle. I mean, if they can't get housing here, then the next option is to drive, you know, an hour south from the peninsula and then that's your commute every day. And that's a hard thing to, to pitch to somebody. Well, for instance, we have some jobs that, and part of this is incumbent on employers, on employers paying more. And we, like if we have a job posted that pays $15 an hour, that comes out to about $30,000 a year. What can somebody afford, a single person living alone making $30,000 a year? About 600 and some dollars a month. And that is assuming like a very basic level of debt. That doesn't assume having massive student loan debt and mm-hmm. a really high car payment or any sort of medical issues. Now, well, and, and imagine, are... imagine throwing that person in there. Maybe they have a, a child. Maybe they have diabetes or any sort of chronic condition. Like, th- you, can't, you can't afford much for a house or for rent. Now, throw in the, so in, in, of all the units, they're building about 200 apartment units in Sturgeon Bay and Sister Bay right now. They're all $800 or more. Right. Not a single and... one of them would be affordable for somebody making double the minimum wage. And $800 a month is like drastically on the low side for property up here. Yes. Um, when, when you're looking for a place to rent, if you like, you'd be very lucky to find something at $800. So they're, they're, they're building these kind of at the floor, but the floor is already really elevated up here. Um, and the thing that you said, I think is a really important take home is that it's not just trying to bring young people up here and give them a, a living wage that they can then get housing. You have to take into consideration uh, medical debts, student loan debts are huge. For instance, my college tuition was $30,000 a year. So spread that over four years. That's, that's ridiculous. And then I, I was lucky to have scholarships and stuff like that to help mitigate that. But a lot of people are not. Mm-hmm. So it is not, it is not unique to have 30 to 60 to $80,000 in student loan debt by the time you graduate. And, and that I think is the biggest weight on the younger generations moving forward is that not only are they trying to jump into the, the job market, trying to jump into the housing market, all of those things have their own challenges right now, but they're saddled with a ton of debt on top of that. It makes things very different from this generation. And not to go all ageist here on this, but when you're talking about boards and policymakers, and this goes up to the state legislative ranks too, and our governors and our, and our representatives in Congress and Senate, when you're talking about a bunch of representatives who are who came of age at a time when college was relatively cheap, when you could pay for it with a summer job, and then they look at millennials like yourself and, and basically anyone like my age or younger who came along when it started to get to a point where like, yeah, you couldn't possibly go to school without taking on a ton of debt. They don't, they don't see it the same way. They might say, well, you just got to work harder. Oh, I'll pull yourself up by your bootstraps like I did. It's like, well, you just didn't have to pull as hard. Like, in fact, you had to pull predominantly less hard because college was, I mean, the state's committed to kicking a lot more in for college education back in the day. I mean, it's not even comparable. So to compare one person's attempt at going to college, even through the 1970s, even through the 1980s, to the ones today or anyone who's graduated in the last 15 years, they're almost like two different products. If you look at the price points of them and what you had to shell out and where it leaves you saddled with debt. And at the same time, you could say, well, Andrew, maybe you shouldn't have gone to college if it's that much, if you couldn't afford it and, and the job prospects weren't going to pay you $100,000 a year. There's, there's a little bit of an argument to be made for that, except all of our high school education is geared toward indoctrinating people with the, with the idea that you have to go to a four-year university 
or your life is ruined. Yeah, I mean, that's how I grew up. That was that was the culture, is yeah. that you go to high school so that you can go to college so that then you can start your career. And, and if like, not, it's like the scare tactics, like, you can't get a job. You'll never make money. You're going to be, like, you're going to be a loser for your entire life. Yeah. That is essentially the message or that like, we've been telling kids for generations. College graduates, on average, gain $35,000 more per year than, you know, like, those types of things. That's, that's what you grow up. And college... It's not for everyone, especially a, a four-year degree or a private school. I mean, those are not for everybody. Um, I think, personally, I think college is great. It was one of the best times of my life. Not so much the paper that I got at the end that was the important thing. It's the experiences that I got going through and learning things. I loved college, too. I dropped out of three of them. Well, yeah, I mean, you, but see, you tried a bunch. That's yes, the thing. You just I sampled them all. Yeah. For me, it, it wasn't so much that, like, I got a—and I got a theater degree, too. That's the other thing. I mean, I paid a ton of money to get a, a, a degree. Okay, so there's no excuse for me. <laughs> sure. But the, the, the difference is, like, I didn't graduate with a, with a theater degree and go, cool, now I can be a theater. Like, now I can—like, if you were to graduate with a law degree or a doctorate, then you could do that. But for me, it was like, okay, so now I have a theater degree. But the path that I took and the things that I learned and the experiences that I had and the connections that I made led me here. So, for instance, uh, I started doing more film stuff in college. I started making trailers for the theatrical productions that we were putting on. You're basically on. the reason we have a podcast? Sure. I didn't do any podcasting in college. I listened to podcasts. But you had but a lot of sound skills and, yeah, I mean, and I was, interviewing skills and uh, performance skills sure. that lend themselves very well to this. Right. And there, there's not too much different from the board that we're using here at the podcast studio and a soundboard at the, the theater. I mean, it's all the same type of stuff. But beyond that, I started working on theatrical projection and video. Then I came up here, did some trailers for some local theaters up here, started doing the video projection for the Gibraltar High School musical. All of that led me into my job at Filmworks. And if it had gone differently, if I didn't go to college or if I had taken a different thing, I also met my wife on our first day of theater class. So, I mean... Okay, so that's number one. Sure, we'll put that <laughs> up there. But then just in terms of, like, career stuff... If I hadn't gone to college or I had taken a different path or I had gone for a different job, I wouldn't be here where I am today. I can clearly look at my time in college and go, yes, that that paid off and led me someplace. Is this like therapy for you, ju uh, justifying yes. your theater? Yes. Background? Yeah, I have to do it every time I tell people. Um, but on the other hand, I'm the exception to the rule. You know what I mean? Like, I'm the type of person who really benefited from going to a private Lutheran school or liberal arts college and getting a four-year degree and doing that. I'm, I'm very privileged in that way, but it's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, technical college is great for a lot of people, like taking internships right out of high school and learning trades, those types of things are great for a lot of people, but it's not a one size fits all. Well, one of those things that people throw out all the time is like, well, your average income for somebody with a four year degree is so much higher. A lot of those, when they throw those numbers at you, they're not saying that, oh, yeah, we're also including all these CEOs in these one percenters in this. Right. Harvard did a study which totally throws off the, the average. Harvard did a study in 2010 or 2011, which I'm surprised didn't just like get a lot more play because every time I bring it up, like nobody's ever heard of it. But the Harvard Graduate School of Education came out with a study that said, if you take away like the top 1% of wage earners, so essentially like your, your high-end surgeons and your executive class at Fortune 500 companies, if you take them out, the average four-year degree holder has a lower median annual salary than your average tech school graduate. Yeah, but what about on the other side of the spectrum where you've got people like Johnny Depp who dropped out of college and then they're part of the 1%? 
No, sure, but but these aren't talking about dropouts. These are ta- this is, this doesn't take Bill Gates isn't inflating that tech school number. This is people who go to tech school. Generally, you can train for a specific trade. You know, the flip side of this that I read is like, okay, your your top end isn't as great, but and and we gear a lot of our policy decisions in the United States based on like aspirational um, ideas and saying, yeah, well, it's not great, but if but I'm going to grow. I'm going to be the guy who rises. The reality is most people don't don't go from one class. They don't go middle class to upper class or lower class to middle class in their lifetime. And as much as we have all this opportunity, that happens a lot less than we think. So that the fact that that tech school job gives you this growth for much less investment. I mean, the tech school is a fraction of the money and you're only going for two years. So you're also, you're also earning by your third year instead of your fifth year. So anyway, there's, I'm not saying that everyone should go to tech school, everyone should drop out, or everyone should go to university. But we have geared it all toward, and this is how we judge our schools, we judge them solely based on college res- readiness. I have never seen anything that judged them on anything but that. So naturally, if you're going to get judged on that as, a, as teachers and administrators, you're just going to be subtly, consciously or subconsciously, inclined to put the other students who are not college-bound second class. Sure. And, and again, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. And I don't want to belabor this point too much more because we did get away a yeah, little we bit from, from <laughs> We the went housing. from housing study to this. And, right. And I mean, but it is, it is tied into that. I mean, for, for me, the, I think as a young person who moved to Door County, the biggest challenges that I had that were high and above every other challenge that I can think of for being here would be finding housing right away. And that was a problem that I was able to solve. But the next big one for me is, is internet. And I talk about it all the time in hopes that the powers that be are listening and that they might come to my house and fix my <laughs> internet. Um, but like that, that's a big deal for me. The other types of things that I feel like young people or people my age who, who come into the county think about right away that very quickly fade to the background are things like, well, I'm not connected to uh, a lot of like places that you would find in, in uh, urban areas or it, it's harder to get to like a Target or uh, a Best Buy. Like you have to go to Green Bay to get to a lot of the places that, but as I've been here now for almost four years, that has quickly faded to the background. Yes. I mean, now Door it's- County is great at training people that you're using like your corporate overlords for all your supplies is a pretty bad lifestyle choice and it's pretty bad for the world. So shop locally. Well, yes, shop locally. But I mean, also, it's not like we can't get Amazon up here. So anything that you can't get in this area, it's not like well, you have to go without it. Yeah, it makes living up here easier. I know this from my wife when we moved up here. She can get a lot of those things. But it also, like, it's nice to go to Spot when you're shopping for a gift instead of Best Buy. It's nice to go to Main Street Market for goods instead of the Roundies or Mariano's. You know, it's it's nice to go to people who you're like, wow, every dollar I spend here, all the profit is going to that person over there in the corner who sends their kids to our school, who donates to our local causes, who shows up to volunteer for our local events and shows up to the board meeting and votes for improvements to our community. Walmart is one of the largest employers in Sturgeon Bay. I've never seen the owner of Walmart at a city council meeting. I've never seen the owner of Walmart come in and vote for anything for the city of Sturgeon Bay or volunteer. I mean, employees do. I'm not knocking all the employees, but I'm saying like the owner, the one who gets most of the profit and their shareholders are never coming to Sturgeon Bay to invest in that community. Are you sure you've never seen Jim Walmart down there in (laughs) Sturgeon Bay? And the same goes for Target, Walgreens, CVS, on down the line. Though that there's a difference with when you have the owners of these businesses in your community. So I'd, I mean, I'm going on another buy local rant. Uh, speaking of buy local, the Peninsula Pulse is hosting a buy local event April 10th, 5:30 in the Pulse office. So come check out our office, get some great food from Time Cuisine, and find out what we're all about. Anyway, back that's to at 5:30. Oh, I can't make that one. Sorry. 
<laughs> um, yeah, I got a place to be. You have to be here. Why don't we table the the rest of this discussion? Because I feel like you and I could talk for a long time about about this. But I think the the most important takeaway is that the study's out. You can read it at DoorCountyPulse.com. Uh, the DCEDC posted a nice article about it. the The last little bit of of news that we wanted to cover this week is that uh, Smiling Bob McDonald passed away. Yeah, Smiling Bob, one of the great characters and legends of Northern Door County. Longtime co-owner of the Bayside Tavern with his wife Elaine. Um, I've been talking to a, f- a few family members the last few days and other and other residents that knew him well. And, you know, he's just like, he's just a fixture. Um, they took over the Bayside Tavern in 1975. It was a little shot and beer bar. And Elaine and, and Bob and their six kids moved up here and had they were not tavern goers. They were not service industry folks. He had gotten laid off from his job at Procter & Gamble. And they came up here and just bought a bar after meeting the owners there at on their vacation, and then six weeks later, they owned the place, and very quickly found out, like, wow, it's not always busy in Door County. These summer vacation days are not the same come September. Well, and I feel like that's kind of a a, a more typical story than you might think. There's a lot of owners who uh, were friends with owners of businesses, and then they were just like, hey, I know that you're, like, a lawyer somewhere or a dentist, but would you like to buy my restaurant? And they're like, yeah, I think I would like to buy your restaurant. Oh, you guys print cash here. It's always busy when I'm here. Yeah, you're always here in July, but we won't tell you about the rest of the year. Right. But then Bob, very quickly, he took to the his own son, uh, Bob Jr., um, said, he, yeah, my dad wasn't a very good bartender. So they always had to staff somebody else while he was working so that one person could actually make all the drinks and serve people and then Smiling could be the the kind of ambassador of the Bayside. And then Elaine managed the business side and managed the cottages and did the books and did the paychecks. And in, interestingly enough, Smilin and his wife divorced about 10 years after they bought the place. Yet to this day, to his last day, they still co-owned the Bayside together and would both be in the bar almost every single day, each with their own new, uh, her with her new boyfriend, him with his new girlfriend, and just be sitting on opposite ends of the bar. And, but they, they were still family. They still ran the place together and, and ran it well. I mean, it's been there 44 years and about 35 of those run by a, a separated couple. And they still cared for each other greatly and took care of each other and watched out for each other. And so it's a, it's a really kind of unique business story and a really unique love story. And um, Bob was, uh, incidentally, his name's Smilin, came from some uh rick hollister used to come in there all the time friend of theirs and he he once remarked that when whenever bob was taking money and counting money from the till he was always smiling so then he just became smiling and most people didn't even call him bob most people just call smiling so um you know another fixture that we've that we've lost who contributed a lot to like the character of of fish creek well, in the McDonald family, like you mentioned, the six kids, a lot of them are are fixtures now. I mean, you've got Bobby McDonald, who took over the Bayside, and then you have Christy Weber, who's a McDonald, and she's been influential in the whole granary movement that's been going on. Um, and then Pat McDonald, the a musician down in Sturgeon Bay, who's been, you know, he's produced albums and, and, and all sorts of stuff. So you've got the, these McDonald's who have kind of like ingrained themselves into the fabric of Door County. And then and Deb McDonald, a business owner, and Ron McDonald uh, owns Northern Grill. Up in Sister Bay. So uh, really a family that just kind of tentacles all over the community. Clearly, Elaine and Bob raise people to speak their minds because they all do. And that's a it's a great trait. And it's kind of funny that all that started because a guy lost his job in Green Bay and it took on like the classic Door County 
either dream or mistake. <laughs> um, for most people, it doesn't work out for 45 years, but for them it did. And uh, yeah, to, I've had many a good time at the Bayside Tavern. So thanks to Bob and Elaine. Yeah, I have too. Uh, specifically because their turkey club is fantastic. <laughs> well, Miles, I think that that's just about going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for chatting with me, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Thank you, Andrew. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit doorcountypulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.